Well, we find ourselves in the final chapter of 1 Timothy. That's 1 Timothy chapter 6. We're going to split the chapter into two. We'll do the first half this week and then the second half next week. So go ahead and grab your Bibles, open them up at 1 Timothy chapter 6, and let's see what God has to teach us this Sunday. Now, we've walked through the first five chapters of 1 Timothy together. The first three, consider what it looked like for the church to be sound in doctrine, conduct, and in leadership. From chapter four onwards, we've seen how that applied to the church family, how we care for one another, how widows should be honoured, and the encouragement to honour those leaders that serve in a most excellent manner. In all of these things, we have established a single principle that underpins the whole letter being above reproach. There should be nothing in our doctrine, in our lives, in our care for others that should be able to be questioned. What we're talking about is taking our justification, our salvation in Christ, and outworking that through sanctification in the daily change to be more like Christ, especially as we serve those in the household of faith. Now, our passage today is split into two parts. Uh, the first part continues this application of sound conduct that we've seen in the church, that we've seen towards widows and leaders, but now we're going to refer it to slaves or for those who work for their lives. The second part returns to the beginning of the letter and giving a profile of false teachers, those who would seek to destroy the church rather than come under the authority of Scripture. Now, as we walk through the passage together, we're going to see two important truths that really are going to be interwoven right the way through the passage. The first is that evangelism requires gospel integrity. Evangelism requires gospel integrity. And second, that the church must be on guard, prepared to fight false teaching for the sake of gospel integrity. And you'll notice our passage ultimately boils down to how we proclaim, how we live out and how we guard gospel integrity. Now with these things in mind, we in a minute will come to 1 Timothy 6, but first I want to make a statement and then back it up with scripture and lay some foundational truths before we head into 1 Timothy 6. And here's the statement, it is a biblical principle that mankind is to work. It is a biblical principle that mankind is to work. And here is the scriptural evidence, Genesis 2.15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Now, I want you to notice that I quote from Genesis 2 before the fall in Genesis 3. It was the design of creation that mankind was to work the land and expound energy in taking care of God's creation. Post-fall of mankind, post-fall meaning that when the sin tarnished all of mankind and, and after that, everything that came after that, slavery was the consistent approach to labour in the land and in the household. Slaves now could come from various ways. They could be prisoners of war, they could have been bought by a wealthy individual or even sold themselves into slavery to pay off a debt. Worse still, they could have been gifted from one family to another for the sake of prestige or for a return of a high-ranking position in the local community. Now, throughout scripture, rulers would amass hundreds, if not thousands of slaves and exploit them for personal gain. And most of us will know the story of the Israelites in Exodus, slaves under the Egyptian rule that grew into hundreds of thousands and multiple generations of slaves. Now there's countless references to slavery throughout the whole of the Old Testament and the New Testament, yet the Bible never explicitly forbids slavery. It does though implicitly discourage the practice, but it unusually stops before the point of forbidding it. 
And we'll come on to that in a moment. But for now, we need to see what the Bible does say, particularly when it reflects the protection of those slaves. Now, firstly, slaves were to be released by law after six years unless they chose to continue to serve. Exodus 21, 2. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve for six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. Secondly, if a slave received any form of physical abuse, they were to be set free. Exodus 21, 26. When a man strikes the eye of its slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of the eye. In the Old Testament, slaves were given religious rights. They were allowed to pray and practice their religion. Of course, this was often abused, but that right was established. In the New Testament, Luke 16 and Matthew 20, we have a suggestion that slaves were paid with provision for housing, food and clothing. Now, clearly, all these protections and commands were in place, but many wicked individuals over history have ignored them and slavery became a sordid, depraved practice that would treat human beings no more than a simple possession. Which brings us all the way to 1 Timothy 6. The practice of slavery is very much still in existence. In fact, it's so common that the estimates are that over 60 million slaves existed and lived in the Roman Empire, that making up about a third of the population at the time. And because of their number, this vast group of slaves, just like in Exodus 1, were often deemed as potential enemies. And any uprising or even a thought of the change to the practice was met with swift and severe punishment. So why doesn't Jesus step in? Why didn't the early church lead a social movement to release the slaves? Well, simply put, the message of the gospel would have been lost in a bloody fight for social reform. William Barclay put it this way, for the church to have encouraged slaves to revolt against masters would have been fatal. It would have caused civil war, mass murder and completely discredit the church. The slow way is the sure way. The way of violence always defeats itself. So if large scale reform wasn't possible, what was Timothy, the young pastor in Ephesus, to do about it? He was to encourage the church to dismantle slavery by a complete change in attitude from revolt to gospel integrity. And I want you to keep that phrasing in your mind from revolt to gospel integrity, because gospel integrity is going to underpin the complete dismantling of slavery. So let's head into our passage for today. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 1. Let all who are under a yoke as slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honour, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Now the word here in verse 1 for slaves can also read as bondservant, which comes from the Greek word doulos, which refers to a person who is in submission to another. They are required to perform duties set by someone who is in authority. Now, it doesn't always carry a negative connotation. In Philippians 2, Paul describes Jesus as a doulos, as he submits to the Father's will. And in 1 Peter 2, we as children of God are commanded to be doulos by submitting to our Saviour, giving our lives as a living sacrifice for the sake of the kingdom. But do you see how on each occasion the doulos, the servant, the slave, is linked to a master, the individual who has absolute and unrestricted authority? Now, when we look at the context of verse 2, where we have believing masters discussed, we can then look upon the masters in verse 1 as unbelieving masters. 
Now we have a believing slave, a slave that has committed their life to following Jesus. And that believing slave is to regard their master as worthy of honour. They should have respect for them, regardless of how they feel about them. 1 Peter 2.18 Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. It seems wrong, but remember that encouragement is not complete revolt, but dismantling by the change of attitude. If these slaves honoured their masters, then God's name and sound doctrine would not be reviled. There would be no question against the believer. The gospel witness of a respectful individual will lead to being able to commend Christianity and the Lord Jesus to the unbeliever, even if the unbeliever is the master. Verse 2. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and are beloved. Teach and urge these things. Again, so widely practiced, even in the early church, there were some believing masters who had slaves. To have a Christian master was to have the temptation to expect a special treatment. Yet the principle should be respect and submission before the master, irrespective of their belief. They are due the honour and therefore they should be given the honour. And I think Galatians 6.10 applies here. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Now, some will say that Paul is condoning slavery here in these two verses. Now, if that's your view, I would say that you need to get below the skin of these verses. Paul is fundamentally changing the status quo. The question is not about slavery. It is about whether we lead people to Jesus or lead people away from Jesus in the manner that we work and serve others. If there's a complete attitude shift to focusing on Jesus and living out the honour that is given to leaders, to widows and now to the masters, then the whole of society will begin to shift to one that reflects the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, Paul commands Timothy to teach and urge these things. We're not trying to be revolutionary and fly the flag of social change. We're to be Jesus followers, living for Jesus, behaving like Jesus, so that our witness for Jesus will turn people to Jesus, so that they may live for Jesus themselves and find transformation in Jesus. It is when they receive this transformation that the whole social sinful structure collapses. For this all to happen, those who serve should serve with obedience serve completely, serve respectfully, serve eagerly, serve excellently, serve diligently, serve humbly, and serve spiritually. We're talking about a complete change in the status quo, one that is Christ-centered. So is Paul condoning slavery here? I don't think he's doing that in verse one and two. I think he's showing a better way of living, a way that will change the social structure and a way that will change the entire society to look and sound Christ-like even leading souls to salvation in Jesus. However, as we head into the second half, the second part of the passage, inevitably there'll be some who will have very different ideas, not just with regards to slavery, but to the treatment of leaders and widows, the church family, and even biblical doctrine. These are the false teachers. John MacArthur said, where illness may kill the body, false teaching damns the soul. We know that false teachers exist. Chapter one was pretty much dedicated to them, 
But how do we identify them? And more importantly, how do we stop them? Remember, gospel integrity here is at stake. So how do we identify those that are going to lead us astray, whether that's to do with teaching on doctrine or teaching on caring for one another or teaching on slavery, those that would lead us away against sound doctrine? How do we identify them and how do we make sure they are stopped? And that's where we head into verse 3. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy and dissension and slander and evil suspicions and constant friction among the people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Now, I want you to note in verse three, the phrase, if anyone, we're not limiting false teachers to those who preach on a Sunday or even to the leaders of the church. False teachers can be anyone who declares that they follow Jesus, yet live, serve, speak and behave in ways that are contrary to a life transformed by Christ. What occurs in verses three through eight is identifiable characteristics of a false teacher and all of these hint to how we can stop them. Now, as I said throughout this series, it is of vital importance that we identify the false teachers, but it's of eternal significance that we stop them, silence them and remove them from the church. So in verses three through eight, what are these identified markers? Well, the first marker is what they affirm by which we mean a different doctrine, coming from the Greek word heterodidaskalio, which means other teachings. It describes anything that is taught that is contrary to the word of God. These teachings deny scripture. They deny its authority, its inerrancy and its authenticity. It puts opinion and it replaces truth with opinion. Now, how do we know what is going to be contrary to scripture if we do not first know what scripture is ourselves? There's a level of urgency placed on knowing scripture. When we know the word of God and what it says, when we know its truth, then we can identify those who would deny its truth. But we don't just stand idly as people abuse the word of God. We take the sword, which is the very word of God, and we go on the offensive. We take down heresy, we silence the false teachers, and we remove their platform. And we do it all from the word of God. And that is why it's my primary task as the pastor of LBC to teach the word of God so that the church would know the fullness of its truth and be able to defend it appropriately. The second marker is what they deny. False teachers are in a continuous state of disagreement. They are more interested in the argument than the conclusion. They disagree with sound and healthy doctrine and they are simply not committed to the study and proclamation of the truth. I'm reminded of those who don't read their Bible daily. Why not? It is the truth that brings life. It is the truth that guides your path. It is the words of the creator. And so the only plausible reason I can see that you do not actively read and study your Bible is that you do not care for the truth. And if you do not care for the truth, then you have denied its words and fall into the camp of being a false teacher. So those who are not active in reading and studying the word of God are identified as a false teacher and should be treated as so. The third marker is what they reject. They refuse teaching that leads to godliness. They become more depraved in their sin for heresy will never lead to godliness. 
Now you've heard me mention the frequent emails I get as a Bible teacher, both from within our church and from those outside of it. And without a doubt, the most common are those who are offended by God's word being taught and who then sling mud at me because I have dared challenge through the word of God their opinion in life. And here's the wake up call. When you reject sound doctrine, you become a false teacher. You live out your denial of scripture, which never leads to godliness and only leads to further sin, which is why the emails tend to get more and more angry in nature, because the only answer I can ever give is look at your Bible and see what it says. Or as Al Muller put it, is it our task to force the biblical doctrine of God to answer to modern culture? Or is it our task to address modern culture with the biblical doctrine of God? If modern culture or any culture establishes the baseline for the doctrine of God, such a doctrine will certainly bear little resemblance to the God of the Bible. In other words, do we let culture impact the way we live or do we let the Bible impact the way we live? If it's culture, it is false teaching. If it's the Bible, it is sound and healthy doctrine. The fourth marker is their attitude. In verse 4, we're told that the false teacher is puffed up and understands nothing. They're full of hot air and they are known for blowing smoke. They have an overinflated sense of self-worth when in fact they don't know anything. They seek only to promote themselves rather than Jesus. 2 Peter 2.18 gives a good description of those who are arrogant in attitude. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh, those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. Credentials are worthless when put against scripture. Opinion is folly when put against scripture. Worse still, teaching your contrary to scripture opinion leads you to be on the very precipice of hell. And let me make it plain and simple today. If your attitude stinks, if your attitude is of arrogance, if your attitude is full of self-worth, if your attitude is full of ego, if your attitude is full of boastful thinking and boastful statements about what you do and what you can serve and what your history is, well then you are a false teacher. You have promoted yourself rather than Jesus. You are puffed up in your words and you should be rejected by the authority of scripture. The first, fifth marker, sorry, is their unhealthy desires. False teachers have an unhealthy desire and a preoccupation with useless questions and constant squabbles over wording. They speculate alternative meanings and seek to bring doubt over the word of God. And how interesting that is, because in Genesis 3, how did the fall came about? The speculation and alternative meaning of the word of God. Now, these individuals fight over the male eldership that we've talked about in chapter 3. They fight over two genders in Genesis chapter 2. They fight over scripture's clear teaching on sexuality. They twist and they turn and they abuse scripture to fit with whatever their social structure is and whatever their desire is. They have no interest in seeing that society is sinful and that scripture is truth and that the only way for us to change society is with scripture. They want just their desires to be met. And so word arguments, translation arguments, definition arguments are their go-to discussions. They are some even within our own church, but certainly widespread, that would deny Paul's letter to Timothy is even scripture carrying authority of all over the things that it's been discussing. And they would deny its authority and simply rip it out of their Bible saying, oh, it's not that important. These individuals are false teachers. The sixth marker is their impact. 
And notice the impact in verse 4, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction. There is no unity produced by such people. In fact, they cause the exact opposite. They cause people to be discontent, which leads to arguments, slander, and even abusive language. Now, have you ever been around someone who just sucks out all the joy from the situation? They're only known for looking at the negative. They rarely pass a positive comment and very quickly hurl abuse or accusations at others. They're never at fault. It's always someone else that is the issue. Well, these people are so wrapped up in their self-centered approach in Christianity that they have themselves become the false teacher. For the family of God is not one massive argument as to who's right and who's wrong. It's the family focused on Jesus, content in his word and hopeful for eternity. If you are a grumpy naysayer, if you're somebody that abuses your position by simply just bringing disagreement and dissension to every situation, you are a false teacher. The seventh marker is their evil minds. Simply, they're depraved. Romans 8, 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. It doesn't matter what text you quote, what doctrine is backed up biblically. These individuals will have an adverse reaction to the truth. They don't seek godliness. They seek themselves to be front and centre. It's the people that say, look at me, look how important I am, look at my credentials and don't you dare share a verse against me. I am above such expectations. They are completely and utterly void of grace, repentance and humility and they are a false teacher. The final marker is their motive. They think only about personal gain, likely referring to finances, but it's not limited to that. Their motive is to make themselves look important. And any such person that demands attention, demands authority, demands rights in the church is an individual who is seeking for themselves and not for Jesus. And therefore, they're a false teacher. Now, this is the profile of a false teacher, these eight things. And I want to be clear, don't just think that these things are issues in just other churches. As we go through these characteristics, I can see some of these behaviours in our very own church. And by the word of God, I say this, that you will not be given a voice in this church if you are a false teacher. You can kick and scream all you like, but we will stand on the word of God, we'll defend the word of God, and we'll ensure that it's Jesus that gets the glory. Any individual that has any issue with that is more than welcome to seek somewhere else to worship. For we are going to be all about Jesus, his word, his glory, and his message to spread the gospel news around the world. J.C. Ryle said, Doctrine is useless if it is not accompanied by a holy life. It is worse than useless. It does positive harm. Something of the image of Christ must be seen and observed by others in our private life and our habits and our characters and doings. We are focused on souls to be saved. We are focused on souls to grow in Christ. And there is no room for our ego, our personal agenda, or our inflated self-worth. We are to die to self, pick up our cross, follow Jesus. Let that be seen in our lives so that we can be seeing souls saved, souls grown, all for the sake of the glory of Jesus Christ. And if you don't buy into that, if you don't want that, if you don't think that you can be involved in that, as I say, you are free to find somewhere else to worship. Let's continue into verse 6. Now, there is great gain in godliness with contentment, for we are brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. With the word now, Paul links verse 5 and 6. In contrast to the false teacher, there is gain from godliness. 
The word godliness simply means a likeness to God. When we couple that, that likeness with God, with contentment, we find great gain. We are content, we are satisfied, for we have Jesus and the impact of his word in our lives. Philippians 4 from verse 11. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, I know how to abound. And in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. True godliness leads to contentment, which leads to gain. And you see the contrast here to the false teacher. They're running around trying to get their way, where the godly are humble before Jesus, fully content to be his servant in whichever way possible. A godly individual is motivated by nothing else than the love of Christ. They don't care about how people view them. They care about how Christ views them. And because of that, they live their lives content and with great gain. Which is why the godly individual thinks about the eternal rather than the earthly. They do not think about their possessions and wealth as something to hold on to, for simply borrowed until the eternal realm becomes our everlasting home. Proverbs 27.4, for riches do not last forever. To focus on earthly riches is to completely miss the beauty of the eternal reward waiting for us. And it always strikes me that the false teacher and the behaviour that we've covered is often found in those that are focused on the earthly. There are often individuals who do not wish to give to the needy or to send money to overseas missions or even to be generous when the Lord calls for generosity. Why is this the case? Because the earthly is more important to them than the eternal. Verse 8. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. The more stuff we have, the more complicated life gets. We must look after it, care for it, invest our time and energy into it. We must juggle multiple things because it's important to keep our stuff and our wealth in good order. I remember a time when Miriam and I had very little. And I tell you now, it was a wonderful time in our family life. God provided our food and our clothing and our housing. And then we were free to serve in ministry, to raise our kids and to spread the gospel. Why? Because we had no earthly thing drawing our attention. And I'm not saying we need a poverty gospel, but rather I think we need a rebalance of what is important. Those who want to be rich are in constant danger of temptation. Their greed takes over and they seek to hold their money and their possessions at all costs. Their desires become harmful. In the church, this is what it looks like. Text this number and give us a donation and God will bless you. These individuals resort to any means possible to just get your gift. Text this number, send this cheque, write an IOU, buy the CD, pay for this lunch, give to this 15th special day this year, and so on and so on and so on. It is greed. It is the church focused on money rather than on Jesus. If we're focused on Jesus, do you know what will happen? He will provide for our needs. Like New Tries Mission, focusing on the gospel outreach across this world and praying for a base, a, a building, a site that they could have a Bible college on. And what happened? Someone phoned, gave half a million pounds and an entire campus was bought. Did anyone ask for the money? No. Was any email sent out? No. Was there any text is text in £10? No. It was prayer before the Lord Jesus, focusing on him, on his mission, on gospel integrity that the Lord rewarded with their needs being covered. 
When you are focused on the gospel, needs are covered. When you resort for begging for more from any avenue possible, you'll find that you never have enough. Verse 9 tells us it simply leads to ruin and destruction. As Zephaniah 1.18, Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy all the earth shall be consumed. For a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. Let's round out our passage in verse 10. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. The godly are focused on Jesus, the false teacher on the love of money. This love leads to self-indulgence and will lead them away from God. Their faith will be rotten to the core for they have traded the prize of Jesus for the sake of coins jingling in their pocket. There is no better example than Judas Iscariot, the disciple, the treasurer, so focused on money that he denied Jesus and sent him to the cross. It's a heavy passage, isn't it? Would it be nice to just simply skip over these verses? But that's not what we do with the word of God. We study even the tough bits so that we can understand the principles that God has set and the character of God himself so that we can serve him as faithful servants. So let me close out with just a few minutes of application so you're not just seeing this as an academic knowledge that you can understand slavery, you can understand false teaching. I want you to be able to see that the word of God penetrates our lives and transforms our hearts. So here's three very quick thoughts for this week. Number one, serve with a godly attitude. Serve with a godly attitude. We are to serve Jesus by respecting our church leaders, by following their lead, by giving them honour, by faithfully providing our lives for the sake of the work of Christ. We're to have a godly attitude, looking for no favours and always seeking the best in others. We're to serve the kingdom, not our ego or our desires. We're to serve in humility, without demands and without grumbling. So this week, check your attitude Check how you respond, how you serve and how you behave. Resolve to have a godly attitude. And I think Matthew Henry put it well when he said, those who teach by their doctrine must teach by their life or else they will put down with one hand what they built up with the other. Thirdly, identify and dismantle false teachers. Identify and dismantle false teachers. With a matter of urgency, we need to identify the false teachers and we need to take the word of God, which is the sword in the arm of God, and dismantle their platforms and their goals. Now, there are people in our own church that have a mission to discourage Bible teaching. There are people in our own church who seek to attack me as the pastor and the leadership so that they, we would cave and bow down to whatever their desire is. There are people in our church who refuse any form of accountability and continue to behave in ungodly ways while also demanding respect, irrespective of their behaviour. And so by the authority of God from this passage from our whole series, I say no more. You won't get to peddle false doctrines and behaviours here. Not here, not now, not ever. Because false doctrine is an abomination to God. We are to live our lives as pure before him for the sake of the gospel that has saved us. Gospel integrity. If you don't hold it and you're leading others astray, we have to silence you. We don't want to have to do that. We want you to live for Jesus. We want you to hold gospel integrity. But if you wander away from it, we have to deal with that so that we can protect and guard the word of God. 
Thirdly, and with this I finish, we are to rely on Jesus. We're to rely on Jesus. It's impossible to seek godliness if we do not rely on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our salvation. Is it not all for Jesus? He is the one who humbled himself to the cross, who took the punishment and the torment, who died and was buried. He was the one that waged war against death and sin. He was the one that declared victory. He was the one that provides, lovingly provides, the salvation that we enjoy through his bloodshed. He is the one that interceded on our behalf. He is the one that sought the Father to send the Spirit to help us in our walks. He is the one who has prepared our eternal home. He is the one that if we ask of anything in his name, it will be provided. And so we must rely on Jesus because anything else is folly. So this week, resolve as the church of Christ to live for Christ and to serve him as the head of the church. You will find life transformation. You will find contentment and you will find great gain if you live in this way. Let's pray. Father, we do indeed pray that our church would stand for the word of God that we would wholeheartedly serve you, that we would be servants, that we would be slaves to the master that is Jesus Christ, the head of the church. Father, we pray that we'd be bold enough to silence false teachers. We'd be bold enough to hold them accountable for the ways they behave, what they say and how they lead others astray. And Father, we pray that we would remove their platforms so the platform of the word of God, boldly taught, unapologetically taught, could have its place front and centre so that the name of Jesus would be glorified. And Father, we pray these things in your name. Amen.